98.1 WQAQ throwback Saturday here at this very frigid uh, uh, 2 p.m. November 1st. Uh, The weather was so warm just one week ago. Great warm Halloween weekend for everyone, I'm sure. Again, like I said last week, I think people probably had to make some, you know, Halloween costume changes because it was just, you know, unseasonably warm. But uh, we, it's caught up to us, all right? Our, our luck has has spent out. Uh, I, I'm Peter Howarth here. Um, an exciting time in sports, um, to, to say the least. Uh, you know, we'll get we'll get into the the meat of the show here in a minute. But uh, I mentioned last week that with NBA starting and and the NHL starts before. The NBA and then we're in, you know, baseball playoffs and middle of the NFL season that we had the potential for a sports equinox. And it actually occurred on Monday night. We had the 30th ever sports equinox where we had hockey, basketball, baseball and football action all in one night. It was game four of the World Series. There was Monday night football as well as regular season NBA and NHL action. Um, but it looks like we could be at the very tail end of that short, brief, magical potential period because tonight with Game 5 of the World Series as the Rangers hold a 3-1 lead over the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, for all, again, all you podcast folks at home, by the time you hear this, um, it's either going to be, uh, I'm either going to be correct um, and it will be a five-game series in which I predicted the Rangers would win and Corey Seager would be... Uh, World Series MVP, which I I would probably he'd probably be the guy right now. Anyways, if the series was over right now, um, or you know uh, the Diamondbacks, you know, have managed to win and stay alive in this series. Either way, we'll know by tomorrow. Uh, but again, it could be the end of that magical, lovely sports equinox period of which again, there's only been thirty ever. Pretty crazy. It just doesn't really happen. Um, So we're going to start off today's show with Riding the Waveforms. Again, our new segment that we debuted last week in which we're going to listen to clips from around, you know, sport and and react and and listen, you know, pretty simple. Uh, Again, we're normally professional sports here on the show, but uh, this this is a really interesting clip I I came across on Twitter and, uh, you know, I just wanted to share it with everyone. And this is one of the traditions here at Toledo after a score. Someone gets on that dunk tank. And tonight, I would be a sure pass. I mean, that looks like fun and all, but also a sure way to get strep throat. Yeah. Pneumonia. (laughs) So they usually have the same person for an entire quarter, but they are being careful tonight. So it's one dunk, and then you're out. They have extra clothes and towels for them tonight. Oh, man. Is it a heated pool at least? Can you get some heaters in there? I don't think it's heated. (laughs) Like I said, it's a tradition. They don't want to buck tradition. It's not supposed to be fun. Yeah, an an absolutely bizarre clip. Um, So, yeah, apparently at... I believe the University of Toledo at their football games, they have this dunk tank that when they score a touchdown, I, I believe is, is what it was in the clip, that, that they have someone uh, gets dunked. You know, they, they, they drop into the tank and uh, they normally have someone do it for a whole quarter. So, um, you know, it's a running gag. But it was quite literally snowing at that game. Uh, I believe it was, I, I believe it was last night, a weird Tuesday night football game, unless I'm just wrong about that. Um, by the way, it was snowy conditions over the weekend. If you watched the, the Chiefs-Broncos game, and you're wondering, or maybe you didn't watch it, and you're wondering, how did the Chiefs lose to the Denver Broncos? Uh, it was snowy conditions in Denver, and then the game just got weird. But 
yeah, Toledo football. They uh, they they had to change their tradition because without cold it was it, it was you know very literally a, a hypothermia risk, a, a real medical risk to have someone be dumped into a freezing tank and then sit there un- until you know an- another touchdown happened. It's just bizarre. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've seen anything like that in really any other sports. I mean, definitely college football. There are these traditions, right? Um, it is, uh, I can't think of the, you know, St. St. Joseph's St. Joseph's in college basketball. They're the Hawks. And so they have a guy in a Hawk mascot and for the whole game, he has to flap his wings. So for, you know, during timeouts, um, even, uh, non TV timeouts, um, it doesn't matter. He's flapping the whole time. If they're getting crushed, if they're down by 40, 50 points to some, you know, perennial contender that is running through him on a early December night. doesn't matter that Hawk has to keep flapping his wings. Um, and you know, I think that's part of the charm of college sports, right? All this, all these bizarre, bizarre, weird traditions that only matter to the few that are tuning in, um, that it matters to them. Uh, but yeah, we don't really talk about college sports on this show. Uh, just cause there's so much like the breadth is again, we're talking about Toledo football, not to mention the top 25 or the teams right outside the top 25. Um, you know, all, all that, all that jazz. Um, so let's just uh, move on quickly to our second clip. Shot clock is off. Wimbledon goes right by Durant. Yeah, so uh, second night of the TNT Tuesday slate on a Halloween night, uh, very spooky inside the NBA. Uh, Kenny, Chuck, Ernie, and Shaq were all in costumes. Uh, best costume probably goes to Shaquille O'Neal, who did dress as emo Jimmy Butler from Media Day. So weird, Jimmy Butler. He's just a strange guy. I don't know why he does that. Um, it is funny, though. I'll give him credit. But the two-game slate was Knicks Cavaliers followed by... Spurs son so it was Victor Wembanyama going up against his favorite player growing up I mean I mean the guy's like 19 so he's <laughs> maybe he's not fully grown up uh but he's fa- going against his idol uh we had a similar thing happen in the World Series I was listening to the game uh I was listening to game three uh on ESPN radio and Boog Shambi their play uh, play-by-play announcer for ESPN radio that he was talking to Evan Carter. Uh, I believe it was before the series. Maybe it was in between games. Evan Carter, who was called up in September for the Rangers, and he's been a left fielder. He's been fantastic, dynamic, down the stretch and through the playoffs. I mean, he's batting third in the World Series um, in what looks like a team that's going to win the World Series. So I have absolutely crazy stuff about um, out of Evan Carter. But they asked him, uh, like, who's your favorite player growing up? And he said Christian Yelich. Christian Yelich, who is like very much still in his prime. I mean, he, he's had a couple like down years, but he had a bounce back year this year. And then Boog Shambi uh, said he texted Yelich that. Said, oh, like, what do you think? And Yelich said, like, uh, expletive. I'm old. Expletive. Uh, so it's crazy. I'm sure Kevin Durant feels the same way. Uh, again, Kevin Durant, not fully peak of his powers, but he he is still... Um, you know, one of the handful of players you want in a, in a do or die game. And uh, Victor Wembanyama, I think, uh, again, the reason the Spurs, who have not had a lot of national TV games at all the last couple of years um, in the post-Kawhi Leonard era, um, the reason 
they're they're getting so much airtime and why Brian Anderson has a chance to react like that. Uh, it's because of Victor Wembanyama, and I really thought that highlight again. So what it was, uh, if you couldn't surmise from the clip, is he had a left-handed poster uh, to end the first half, and those were his four, first points of the game. He had struggled up to that point, so I think that highlight um, was really a perfect encapsulation of what Victor's rookie year could be like, and maybe on a broader scope, uh, what the Spurs are going to go through this year. Uh, he's going to have some like jaw-dropping plays, right? And even if it's a little less than jaw-dropping, what he can do with his length, um, not many people have seen. Uh, you know, we've seen flashes out of guys like Bull Bull or uh, obviously his father, Manute Bull, uh, Thon Maker, you know, these the sort of thin, toolsy, lanky um, guys. Um, they, they they don't fall out of trees. Um and for Wemby to be like an actual real viable version of that is, again, unprecedented. So he's going to have these crazy plays. I mean, Reggie Miller said in the clip that he, you should see Durant's face. He was amazed. Unfortunately, I never got to see an angle of Durant's face. I don't know if, if TNT ever released one. But it's going to make everybody um, be in wonder. And those were the reports when Wemby played in that exhibition against Scoot Henderson and the G League Ignite. I believe it was in Vegas last December. All the reports were that everyone was blown away. So to have that translate and have the same reactions in the NBA, um, I don't think is too surprising, but it is worth noting considering, again, he's playing against NBA-level competition, not like G League, not um, top-level international like he was in France. But these plays, I think they're going to make him look better than he actually is. And again, he's he's toolsy. He is uh, he's still incredibly raw, though. Um, they were saying on the broadcast that Greg Popovich was just saying how, you know, when he dribbles the ball and and he has a de- he's an okay handle for a guy at his you know seven five ish height. Uh, because he's so tall, he needs to bring the ball down lower. It's super easy for teams to snatch the ball from him. Um, and it's it's being evident in the stats. I mean, he's he's averaging nearly five turnovers a game, which for a center is really high. That shows how much the ball has been in his hands, um, for better or worse. Uh, he's also shooting like around forty five percent from the field, which is not a great number uh, at his volume. Um, it, it's not it's not crazy. I mean, if you're a big man, you want you know closer to sixty percent. Uh, but also in general, efficiency is never good for rookies, uh, regardless of position. Uh, it just never is. Uh, and he's shooting 23% from three. So he's letting it fly. Uh, he's feeling comfortable out there. The shot, he is a fluid shot, uh, Wemonyama. That is, you know, sometimes you see the big men that develop the three or like Yusuf Nurkic was, was pulling a lot of threes last night. Not a natural three-point shooter. He developed that late. Wemonyama is much more of a natural three-point shooter. But still, the percentages aren't there. And let me be clear the Spurs they pulled a victory out of the jaws of defeat last night they had no business beating the Phoenix Suns they were down by around 20 the Suns were shorthanded they've been without um Bradley Beal for uh all every game of this early season and they've been without Devin Booker following opening night so it's been reminiscent of some of those weird Nets teams. It's basically Kevin Durant and a bunch of dudes out there like Eric Gordon, Grayson Allen, Nurkic, uh, Yuta Watanabe, Josh Okoji, 
Uh, they just got a bunch of dudes there running out there. And they just weren't able to, to hold the lead, and the Spurs were being very feisty. Uh, Trey Jones was playing well, Devin Vassell, Zach Collins, Keldon Johnson uh, was the one who stole the ball from Kevin Durant on the inbounds pass and then and then hung in the air and got the layup to go to to put the Spurs in the lead. Uh, that was their first lead of the night. It was with, you know, 0.8 uh, seconds left or whatever it was. But the Spurs are, they, again, they're 2-2. Two and two. They would have been 1-3 and three if they had lost. Um, and their two wins are from that incredible comeback, which shouldn't be discounted. But, you know, more times than not, that's not a win. And then their other win was when they beat that Houston Rockets team, which has been uh, uh, bad, to say the least, to start this season. Uh, you know, they're still w- uh, working out their kinks. Dylan Brooks made a, made a fool out of himself guarding Steph Curry the other night. Most people do, but he looked really bad for someone who prides himself on defense. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not too inspired by the Spurs' two wins. Um, I will say them being able to, to get a resilient win like that on the road, um, no matter if the Suns were shorthanded on national TV, uh, it's huge. Uh, and these two teams play again on Thursday. So um, Phoenix might have a wake-up call. Who uh, I have a feeling like Devin Booker won't be back by then. But still, I, it's incredible for that to be the case. Um, I'm not writing off Wemby's season, but I do think there is a chance he doesn't end up winning the rookie of the year because there's a chance the Spurs, again, they have two wins. I wouldn't call them, um, you know, two inspiring wins. Granted, granted the, the comeback win is, is is quite inspiring, but I don't think it's indicative of a larger trend necessarily. But the Spurs are probably not going to be very good. Um, and if Wemby has, has, you know, this okay efficiency and if he doesn't put up insane numbers, then I think at some point uh, the curtains will, will will sort of part and uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll kind of take things stock of where they are without the name value of Victor Wembanyama. Again, the guy I'm looking at here is Brandon Miller just because I think uh, the, the Hornets will not be as bad as they were last year. I do think last year was an anomaly. I don't know about um, how things will be uh, regarding Miles Bridges when he comes back from his suspension. Um, but I think Brandon Miller has a chance to just, you know, put up buckets, huge numbers uh, on the Hornets. Through three games, he's shooting 47% from the field and 44% from three, 90% from the free throw line. So he's pretty close to having a 50-40-90 start as a rookie. That's crazy. Again, with rookies, the one thing you don't see is you don't see efficiency normally. That's normally the one thing holding rookies back that they can put in this potential, but you know it usually comes at the expense of something. Uh, like look at someone like Jalen Green or Jaden Ivey. Uh, they typically have not had good percentages, even if they can you know put in 24 a night. He also has six rebounds, uh, almost a block, half a steal, uh, three fouls a game, kind of high. Uh, 1.3 turnovers, though, pretty low for Brandon Miller, and 17.3 points when he's playing 31 minutes a game. This is a bona fide good NBA player uh, through three games. Uh, the Hornets are 1-2. and two. They play at the 0-3 Houston Rockets tonight, uh, so it'll be interesting. Either way, uh, either the Hornets will get to 500 or the Rockets will get their first one of the season, which is very interesting. Yeah, I think Miller can just put in, uh, you know, put in buckets and, and be able to uh, 
I'll put up big numbers and at a certain point we'll look away from from the name brand value and, and we'll see maybe who's just having like a better statistical season. All right, en- enough talk about Victor Wembanyama. Uh, here's our third clip. This is James Harden getting what he wanted. He is undefeated. And I'm even going to go back to when he got traded from the Thunder and he got his max contract in his own team with the, with the Rockets. He is undefeated in four trades in his career. We've seen guys like Hakeem Olajuwon at the end of their career, you know, basically go into a side business training NBA players. I'm serious. When James Harden's career is over, he should open up a consultancy where he advises players on how to get traded because he's untouchable. And I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek. He gets exactly what he wants when he wants under his terms. Victory today for James Harden. Uh, That was Brian Winhorst on, uh, I believe, NBA Today on ESPN. Talking about the James Harden trade, right? So for anyone who missed it, James Harden uh, got traded to the L.A. Clippers overnight overnight. you know, on, on the beginning of Halloween, I suppose, in the early morning um, for a, a combination that included a bunch of veteran salaries and Robert Covington, I believe Nicholas Batum, uh, Marcus Morris, uh, and, uh, and a couple first-round picks in exchange for, for Harden and P.J. Tucker and uh, some rookie, I don't know. Uh, and, you know, the outcome of this is how did James Harden manage to get what he wanted? He sort of tanked his value um, by by refusing to show up until like a week ago to Philadelphia. And it was clear throughout this process that James only wanted to go to the Clippers. That absolutely tanks your value because there's no bidding war. And granted the history of James Harden's uh, complications for asking out and maybe him not being the best teammate. And obviously it hasn't, exactly paid off in terms of championships so there's not that in in the back of everyone's mind that there's not this bidding war and that if he says he wants to go to the Clippers it's just up to the Clippers whether to step up to the table or not you know and they were reluctant to include Terrence Mann he was not included in the final deal so in a way you know it paid off their their resistance their reluctance their hesitation but in the end they still do it and and they sacrifice more first round picks and not to mention, there was a lot of talk that this Harden saga could last weeks, that we don't know when the end could be in this season. And the Sixers, to their credit, have looked good even without that all-star hole in their lineup. Tyrese Maxey has taken that next step in, in being the guard next to Joel Embiid on this team. Um, and in their first game of the season, last Thursday, six days ago, uh, as of, you know, live, they played very well against Damian Lillard and, and Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks. They ultimately lost, but they played a very good competitive game. And it looks like they're actually a good team. So them to be able to turn James Harden, who has been you know a, a zero asset to this team this year, and he's on an expiring contract into some future LA Clippers picks down the road in like 2028, who, who even knows who's on that team by then? Those could be really, really valuable picks. And a lot of mid-range salaries that even if they don't flip Robert Covington and Marcus Morris, you know, they're veterans, they're, they're valuable members of a rotation, especially when Philadelphia's bench has been uh, a little suspect in recent years. Uh, I mean, they lost George Niang to the Cavs, uh, who uh, has the most regular season wins of the 2020s, uh, or maybe just total wins. If anyone uh, was curious about that uh, weird stat. But even if they don't end up flipping 
those salaries and those picks, which I do think they eventually will because I think uh, Daryl Morey is in the business of, of star hunting to a degree. And James Harden was his star. So, you know, amazing he was able to actually, um, you know, give him up. I, I don't think they're done here. Um, it, and, and again, just it's still absurd, right? I, I can never say this enough. It's absurd that he can whine. He can, you know, gain weight to an apparent degree as he did with the Rockets and just quit on a team and make it work. Like what other profession can you complain and just actively be a bad employee and then get transferred to wherever you want to go. Like if it's a different department, location, like whatever it may be, it's just absurd. And so I do think in the grading of this trade, um, it's still an incomplete because we, it's a, a recent report seemed like James Harden may debut Monday with the Clippers. I'm still dubious because uh, Paul George needs the basketball to succeed. So does Kawhi Leonard. Um, and then they have Russell Westbrook, who I think has uh, taken a good role and, and has done all the right things on this team. But I don't know what, what his role will be like with James Harden, who again, obviously needs the ball. I have no idea how this is going to go. And, and I'm still dubious of the Sixers staying pat. So still incomplete grades, but um, just a weird saga, right? James Harden, just a weird guy. Um, and somehow the outcome was James Harden getting to where he wanted and the Sixers somehow getting real value for um, someone who, who they ri- they wrote off. And I think they were, you know, fully expecting to go maybe multiple months um, carrying this burden. And instead it lasted, you know, maybe three, four games. Um, pretty crazy. Anyways, over to the NFL. Let's change things up a bit, okay? Uh, we're going to be looking at receivers by the numbers. Uh, this is something we talked about last year, that ESPN has been developing this sort of receiving metric, this this uh, all-encompassing grade um, that they break down receiving performances into three different categories. Uh, an open grade, which grades how well a receiver can simply create space and just be an open target. A catch grade which factors in when a receiver makes like a spectacular impossible catch and when they drop a wide open one, right? Just like how good they are catching and a yak category, which is just being how, how proficient they are uh, at gaining additional yardage after the catch. So, uh, through week eight, uh, essentially halfway through the years, uh, 18 weeks, 17 games. So, so I guess week nine will be the halfway point officially. Here are your top 10, in their overall grades. So combining those three categories. Um, and then I also have the category breakdowns for you. Um, so there are some familiar names definitely at the top. Uh, number one, AJ Brown. Uh, for all you fantasy owners, I'm sure you're well aware. He did um, break a tie with Calvin Johnson for the most consecutive 125-yard receiving games. He now has, I believe, six in a row. And the record was five. Shows you the kind of volume he has been getting. Uh, number two, Brandon Ayuk, uh, maybe everyone's favorite sleeper receiver for the past couple of years, gets overshadowed by Debo and now McCaffrey and, and Kittle in San Francisco. Brandon Ayuk, he just keeps producing. Number three, C.D. Lamb. Number four, D.J. Moore. And then, uh, then, then it's a little weird. I mean, I mean, D.J. Moore is a little weird as is. Um, I think that Thursday night football game where he had you know, three touchdowns, two hundred yards, maybe maybe uh, skewed this a bit. 
But uh, number five, Nico Collins of the Houston Texans. Number six, Keenan Allen. Number seven, Tank Dell of the Houston Texans. Uh, number eight, George Kittle. So our highest tight end on this list is George Kittle, not not uh, not Travis Kelsey, not Mark Andrews, um, but George Kittle. Uh, number nine on this list, Adam Thielen. Yeah, old man Thielen down in Carolina. Uh, been very productive. Uh, again, all you fantasy owners who have Adam Thielen will know, and you'll be very thankful, and you'll be preaching on the mountaintops. Um, but he's been great as well. And number 10, Chris Godwin. Crazy. Uh, so... Again, before we look at maybe some of the more specifics here, uh, I don't know if, if that's like the best 10 receivers in football. Um, based off this season, I do know like Nico Collins has been very productive. Keenan Allen is, you know, uh, defying age. AJ Brown's been a monster. Brandon Ayuk, he's been like on and off. TD Lamb's good. TJ Moore has been good. Uh, like the other guys have all been good, but I don't think you would grade them as the best receivers in the NFL. Um, so I pulled some of the household names that you probably know. Um, and I'm just going to let you know where they land on this list. Uh, Jamar Chase is 12th. Travis Kelsey, as I said earlier, is 15th. Tyreek Hill, is probably the name you've been wondering about. I believe he's the number one fantasy receiver. Um, as, as in where he is among all fantasy players, I presume he's very, very high. Uh, I don't have that number in front of me. But he, he grades as the 20th best receiver in football. Um, so, uh, you know, take that for what that is. Uh, Debo Samuel, 24th. Stephon Diggs, 25th. Um, uh, this many people being ahead of Stephon Diggs also seems silly. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins, 39th. Devontae Adams for all of his troubles. And, and we'll, get into, we'll get into the Raiders in, in a little bit here. Devontae Adams, 47th. Amon Ross, St. Brown, Matthew Berry's favorite sleeper, 49th. And Cooper Cup, uh, who who did miss time uh, on IR to begin the season, uh, 50th. So uh, I, I really don't know, know how to evaluate this because especially if you look at some of the breakdowns, right, based off of these three metrics, I don't know if I agree with it. Um, I don't necessarily know where the numbers are coming from. I mean, they do have, you know, yards and routes and targets and yards per route run, which are important, but I don't know how it conveys those. They do say that they are using player tracking data from next gen stats. So I guess they're maybe evaluating a route to see if they run it well to create more separation than the average player. Um, Same thing with catch and maybe just yards of separation uh overexpected with uh yak but still like let, let's look at someone like tyree kill tyree kill is very very good at getting open because he can run past people and find soft spot on the defense or even just blow it up over the top but in terms of the open grade the number one in football according to espn analytics is brandon Ayuk. Um, and yeah, he is a very savvy route runner. He, he's a little Devontae Adams-esque if you do watch him run routes in terms of his release and uh, just off, off the line of scrimmage. But they have Tyree Kill as the 20th best receiver in football at getting open. They have Cortland Sutton ahead of him. They have Mark Andrews ahead of him. Tyler Lockett. Um, Elijah Moore. Uh, it's just kind of weird to me. Uh, and especially Yak, someone like Tyreek, you think, all right, when they get the ball, there's no bringing him down. He's just explosive. Um, and again, I do think 
depending on on how this works, uh, there, there's it's it's misleading because if he gets the ball on a screen, you know, screens are basically all yak. But Tyreek Hill has also been a very dependable weapon for Tua to get first down. So um, if it's a third down situation, if he runs a little out route on third and five, he gets six yards and steps out. That's not helping his yak. But when he blows defense over the top, that is. So his yak grade, uh, I'm pausing because I'm trying to find it, is 34th. They're saying Michael Gallup is equal in terms of creating yards after the catch. This season, of course, that Josh Palmer is better. Logan Thomas is better. Josh Reynolds, Tyler Conklin is better. Michael Wilson. Some of these names you might not even know. Like who actually knows who Michael Wilson is, right? He's a receiver on the Cardinals, if anyone knew. Um, most people don't, though. And so saying that, that Tyree Kill uh, has, has not been as good at him as in Yak is, is strange. Um, I don't mean to just, uh, you know, absolutely rip apart these stats. I just find them very interesting. And I think they can help the, uh, you know, maybe the average fan uh, understand you know, why, you know, I, I see why Nico Collins is, is so good uh, in fantasy. And I see he puts up these huge numbers, but like, how is he doing it? And I think, uh, you know, if you look at his stats, he's pretty even across the board. He, he has a pretty above average catch and yak score, uh, kind of low in the open score. So maybe you can get the feel that he is more of a a guy who can create separation after some contested catches, but maybe he's not the best route runner, something like that. But it's, you know, we're we're not going to say Jamar Chase is the 12th best receiver in football, right? We think he's better. Do we really think Kendrick Bourne is above Travis Kelsey? Do we really think um, Tank Dell is above <laughs> Travis Kelsey? Probably not. Um, but it, it, it is really revealing. Uh, a couple other points I wanted to make here. Um, George Kittle, again, is the highest tight end, and... I, I think you could make the argument that that George Kittle is the best tight end of football, partially um, and certainly uh, in large part due to what he can do as a blocker. And that is what can separate tight ends nowadays, even though it's become more of a uh, just a large receiver sort of uh, position. Travis Kelsey, to a degree, is just a, a large wide receiver because uh, he um, that's why he's been the knock uh, on him certainly from a New England perspective who uh, will keep on, you know, rooting the, the Rob Gronkowski bell here. And I, I still think he is peak maybe, but Kelsey's eventually going to get him on longevity because they're the same age, by the way. Isn't that crazy? Travis Kelsey, Rob Gronkowski, the same age. doesn't feel like it. Um, too bad Gronk retired. Um, but if you look at George Kittle, He's the best in terms of these three stats, open, catch, and yak, at getting open. That's his highest grade, which I find kind of surprising because he's always been a great yak guy for, for his size. Um, and, and he is good at catching the football. His open grade being the highest is, is puzzling to me. Same thing with Travis Kelsey. So his open is the highest, which I do understand because he uh, is supremely good at having that innate connection with Patrick Mahomes and being able to find the soft spot of a defense, but he's also a yak god. He is just incredible at 
at keeping uh, get, getting a little five-yard pass in the middle of the zone and turning it into 25 yards. Anyways, those, those are basically all my observations from that. I just wanted to share them. I think they're pretty crazy. Um, but after the break, we're going to come back with talking about the Las Vegas Raiders. Yes, they cleaned out shop. Who is still here and who is gone? And what does that mean for the future of this franchise, right? Uh, should we care about what the Las Vegas Raiders have cooking? All that in a minute. Back from the break and the Las Vegas Raiders have been raided. Yeah, it seems like the Grim Reaper went through Allegiant Stadium and and just wiped out uh, every football official with the team. Because it it was reported overnight that uh, despite them being quiet at the trade deadline, we know maybe why that was the case. They fired head coach Josh McDaniels, GM Dave Ziegler, and offensive coordinator Mick Lombardi. Uh, but pretty crazy news. Uh, McDaniels got his second chance at head coaching uh, with the Raiders. He he had coached again in the late 2010s, or sorry, late 2000s, early 2010s uh, with the Denver Broncos, and he was not a successful head coach there. Uh, he was 11 and 17 during his time in Denver. He was fired partway through his second season. Uh, and, and as the story went, he went back to New England, and he was longtime offensive coordinator. For Tom Brady and the and Bill Belichick uh, before he it seemed like he was maybe going to be he was groomed he was in line to be the eventual heir to Bill Belichick. Well, what happened is um, Belichick has just kept on chugging along for better or worse, uh, depending if you're a Patriots fan out there. If you have an opinion on it, uh, he kept on chugging along, and um, McDaniel's got an offer from the Indi- Indianapolis Colts. To be their head coach. Um, certainly a good offer. The Colts are a uh, are a real organization. Um, have history. Have have good fans. Uh, um, and so he took the position, but he pulled out at at the twenty third hour. It seemed to be um, that did not make Colts uh, fans and officials feel very good. Guy pull out of the job so late. Um, and so he returned to New England, uh, and eventually last. Two off seasons ago, I suppose this would be. He signed a big six-year deal to become the head coach of the Raiders. And as it goes, he went nine and sixteen, slightly worse uh, during his time as the coach. And he was fired partway through his second year. But he signed to a six-year deal. And uh, just so everyone knows, the way coaching contracts work is if he signs a six-year deal and they fire him partway through his second season. They still have to pay him the rest of the four years, the the four plus years it would end up being. And not to mention, this is after the Raiders, their previous coach, not their not their interim co- interim coach, but their previous full time head coach that they had hired was John Gruden, whom they signed to a record ten year deal. And so they're still paying him. I believe, unless part of the firing was due to a violation of team rules, which I don't uh, think it appears to be. I believe his firing was due to, you know, emails that were uncovered that were long before his tenure. Um, So I had nothing to do about his time with the Raiders. But they're paying both of these guys absurd amount of money now. And and it's very Raiders-y, isn't it? Um, You know, you shouldn't be surprised from them. Especially because 
coaching contracts aren't usually reported. It's usually not known maybe how long a deal is or certainly the money. Um, usually the only things we hear about coaching deals is when they get one, um, if they're in the last year of a deal, or if part of their deal uh, you know, has some other sort of parts to it. Like if they also happen to be like the GM of the team, like like Doc Rivers was for for a span for the Clippers, or of course what Belichick is in New England. So being able to, to again find out the length of McDaniel's deal, the length of Gruden's deal, and how much money Gruden was making is because the Raiders seem to want to make this splashy stuff, and they want it to be known, and they want to be in the headlines. And it's not working. It it is not working. I think they would have been better off keeping McDaniels um, because it's not not all his fault, okay? Um, Certainly he had some influence in bringing in some of the New England guys back. But it's been just bad decision after bad decision. And and I think, you know, a fair amount of blame here has to go on the GM, Siegler. And I don't know how much involvement McDaniels has with those decisions. I'm, I'm sure some. Uh, there's a great breakdown of everything of of basically the last two and a half years for the Raiders by Bill Barnwell of ESPN. And it started when McDaniels took the job. So he inherited a 10-7 and 7 Raiders team that had a negative point differential, right? There are sort of expected records if, if you do... Um, I don't exactly know how it works, but based on point differentials... It tells you what your record should be. So by them having a negative point differential, they probably were more like an eight and nine team, maybe a seven and ten team than a ten and seven team. They had four games in a row winning out the season. They beat Nick Mullins, Drew Locke, Carson Wentz as as some of the quarterbacks in those games. In one-score games, so that's seven or fewer points. We talked about the Minnesota Vikings a couple weeks ago and how they were, I believe, seven and zero last year in that, and how maybe it was a fluke. Obviously, uh, some uh, some unlucky stuff with Jefferson getting hurt and uh, now now Kirk Cousins, but seemed like they took a step back. The Raiders were seven and two in games uh, decided by one score in that year, so maybe that was also fool's gold. And so. Off of that, they decided, yeah, let's load up. That's what we need to do. Uh, we're probably going to regress because we're probably not as good as it looked to be. So let's actually go all in uh, thinking that that is legitimate. Uh, not the solution here um, because first decision was to trade for Devontae Adams. Traded a first-round pick and a second-round pick for, for, for Adams, which they then gave him a five-year, $140 million contract. It's not the worst trade, um, and he's been uh, a good, I guess. Um, he's been frustrated and maybe underutilized, so it's hard to tell. Uh, paying a receiver over 30 that much is maybe not always the, the best idea. But but sacrificing a first and a second just to give him that contract is a lot. I understand if you give him that and you feel like you're on the brisk of contention, like look at what the Dolphins end up doing eight days later. 
They traded for Tyree Kill, and they paid him even more money than Adams got. But guess what? The Dolphins felt they were that one guy away. Um, and once they, they changed schemes with McDaniels and that unlocked the rest of Tua Tagovailoa, they have looked like one of the best teams in football. The Raiders were not that. They were never going to be that. But still, they, 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 thought, they thought bringing in a number one receiver would help just solidify everything. And it didn't work. And so then, you know, the Raiders keep throwing money around. Like, they, they signed Chandler Jones to a big, big money deal, even though they were pretty sound patch rush. I mean, they had Max Crosby and Yannick Ngakwe. And then uh, Chandler Jones, you know, he ended up, I don't know if you guys have been following this, but he just sort of, like, mentally was breaking down over the offseason. And there's been this weird sort of subplot of everything he's been doing on social media and calling out, Mark Davis, the Raiders' owner. Very weird saga. Then the Raiders signed Derek Carr to an extension. That's all funny money. You know, that's how the NFL contracts go. Uh, They get, they're terrible in the draft. Again, they trade away their first and second round picks for Adams. So they're pretty, they didn't have a lot to work with as is. But the picks they made were just not good and they didn't work they decline Josh Jacobs' fifth-year option. He's on a monster, so they have to pay him. They franchise him, actually, for this year. So they signed Hunter Renfro to an extension, two-year, $32 million. And now they just don't use him. You know, maybe he's good. Certainly uh, his, his 2021 year was very, very good, and that's why they gave him the money. They extend Darren Waller, and then they eventually trade him. Um, And, and then they fall, and then they... They, they fall back to the mean. They signed Jimmy Garoppolo to a big money deal. He's been hurt and he's been bad. And now they're benched him. So, so what is next for the Raiders? It's not a lot, especially based off their track record. It seems like they'll go out and, and try to get a big coach. Probably, probably not the best idea when you're already paying two others, but that's what they'll do. Aiden O'Connell, uh, who's the rookie quarterback, who's now the starter, we'll see what he has. He probably doesn't have enough of the juice. And Devontae Adams has been super frustrated lately. I'm sure he's happy to see McDaniels go, but now he has an interim coach and a rookie quarterback. I don't think he's that much happier. Um, so if they trade Devontae Adams in the offseason, then they're not going to get a first and second for him with the salary, and he's going to be two years older. So maybe they won't trade him because they, they feel like if they trade him and they don't get that, that value back that they gave up, that it may not be worth it. So there's no winning here. Um, all the Raiders fans out there, I'm sorry, that sucks. But that's how it goes. All right. Let's start wrapping up the show now with X's, O's, Q's, and A's. Because every Monday on my Instagram story at Peter underscore Howarth, I will be putting up a poll where you can ask a question of me that I will answer live on the show. So we got four questions today. Um, you know, if you have a question, uh, look out on Monday. Uh, it was a little late Monday, I'll be honest. It ended up being more Tuesday, so a little, a little spooky questions. Um, but anyways, you'll see them there. So our first question uh, from at Carson Laundry. Is Craig Breslow the savior of the Boston Red Sox baseball club? 
Uh, well, Carson, uh, thank you for asking. Thank you for the question. Uh, so Craig Breslow has been hired as the new uh, top guy. You know, I, I think it's director of baseball ops. I don't know. It doesn't matter what the title is. But he, he's the man in charge in, in, uh, in Boston for the, for the Red Sox. I, I think he very well could be the savior. Again, um, there's maybe some frustrations about how, you know, manager Alex Cora and former GM Heim Bloom, whether they were on the same page. And that could have been stemming from the fact that they didn't view the game the same way. Uh, Bloom coming from a very strict analytical background and Cora, who does employ and believes in analytics. He's, he's not just, you know, straight hardball kind of guy. He also played the game, though, and so uh, those two uh, opinions and, and viewpoints don't always align, and that's okay, but, you know, maybe Bloom just couldn't really get to that place with Cora, and Cora couldn't fully accept Bloom, whatever it may be. So Breslow is, core, is sort of the best of both worlds here. He's a former Yale guy, um, very successful and, and well-regarded during his time under Theo Epstein, who seemed to give him the seal of approval with the Chicago Cubs. And then he's a former player, he's a former player in Boston, so understands the market. Uh, I, I believe the report is he, he lives in Boston, um, so, and he's stayed around the area. So he knows the area, he knows the team and the fan base, um, and he knows how to run an organization to a degree. And one of the big things he did in Chicago is he overhauled the pitching, pitching really development program that he turned uh, them into a, a stuff and velocity uh, powerhouse that they ended up being just developing really nasty pictures in terms of being able to throw the ball hard and to have really good, really good stuff, right? Really good break on pictures, filthy, filthy stuff. Um, and th- these are all things Boston needs. They, they need conviction. They need someone to understand, you know, not only the team, but just the temperature in the market. Um, and someone who would be willing to win. And and I think uh, he checks all the boxes. So I do think he could be the, be the savior. Um, but as always with, with uh, front office hires, I'm hesitant to love or hate them at this point. I just want to see what happens, right? That's all that really matters here about what moves they make. I hate the speculating just based off the hire. Then we have uh, from at Kelly underscore green underscore. Uh, how does football work? Uh, thank you for the question, Kelly. Um, well, unfortunately, we're kind of late in the show. So explaining the whole sport of football would be um, be a tough task, uh, to say the least. But hey, let's hang out sometime. I'll, uh, I'll explain it to you. We can watch the game. I'm sure that's the solution that would work out for everyone here. Um, then we have at... Carly Green, uh, there is relation there. Uh, best rookie in the NFL this year. Uh, thank you for the question, Carly. Uh, it's a great one, actually. Uh, there's been a ton of, it's been a great rookie class. Um, I think some people might be looking past it because they're looking at uh, the top of the draft and they see, well, Bryce Young has been you know, maybe not that great as the number one overall pick for the Carolina Panthers, but don't let that take away everything else. So just looking at the odds here, according to um, a sports book, I'm not sponsored, so screw you guys. Uh, Number one in offensive rookie of the year is CJ Stroud. 
Uh, and again, he's been great for the Texans. He's been great not turning the ball over. Obviously an issue among rookie quarterbacks a lot. Um, and getting the most out of uh, a unit that really wasn't able to expected to compete. I mean, we went through these top 10 receivers, right? There are two Texans receivers in there. Tank Dell and Nico Collins. No one would have said that. That it's insane what he's been able to get out of them, and maybe they're just really good, and we're sleeping on them, or maybe CJ Stroud is bringing out the best of them. Some of the other guys, uh, Puga Nakua, undrafted receiver for the Rams. He, regardless of being a rookie, has been one of the best receivers in the NFL. His target share has been insane. Matthew Stafford loves throwing to him. Hopefully Stafford's healthy. I know I think he had like a thumb issue or whatever. Even with Cooper Cup returning in Week Five. Uh, Puka's been a monster in, in the volume he's gotten. Uh, he's legitimately good, not just rookie good. Uh, other other people worth mentioning here, Jalen Carter, defensive tackle for the Eagles, right? He maybe should have been near the top of the draft. He dropped due to all of his off-the-field sort of things. Uh, he drops to the Eagles, who love him and all the other Georgia guys. And he's been a monster in the interior. interior. One of the best pass rushers in the league. Um, again, regardless of being a rookie, uh, worth noting. And then also cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, Devin Witherspoon. They picked him in the first round and he's been all over the place. He's had sacks. He's had fumble returns. He's had picks. He's been a ball hawk. Um, you know, they're, they're starting to develop some real, real stuff up there in Seattle. They acquired, Leonard Williams at the trade deadline from the Giants. So they're starting to put together uh, some some action up there because there's always the offense in Seattle last couple of years with Gino. And now if they're loading up on defense, you know, maybe watch out. Um, also worth noting um, would be um, Christian Gonzalez, cornerback for the Patriots. Absolutely fantastic. Again, he was one of the best receivers, or sorry, corners in the NFL, regardless of being a rookie, but... He's now out for the rest of the year. Uh, if I were to pick the best rookie, I'm going to go Nakua because he's legitimately good, not just rookie good. Uh, I think Stroud is the odds-on offensive rookie of the year favorite just because doing that at the quarterback position is is you know a whole different level. It weighs way more. But I'm going Puka. And then, Carly, you have a second question here. Uh, what would it take to make the Saints a Super Bowl contender, and could they make it with Derek Carr? Um... So I'm going to answer the second part first. I think there is a path to Derek Carr being like a quarterback who makes it pretty far in the playoffs. I don't think they could make a Super Bowl maybe. Um, You know, if you're trying to think of some of the worst quarterbacks to make Super Bowls, you know, that come to mind recently, you know, Stafford, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, um, you know, Joe Flacco, Jared Goff. Uh, So there's a path. Uh, to Derek Carr, but it means everything around everything else around him being perfect. Um, and there's a couple issues with that. Um, when the Saints were fully contending with um, Drew Brees, one of the most underrated parts was always their defense, and their defense has been just kind of stagnant the last couple of years. It's like a good unit. But it's no longer as dynamic as it used to be. Cameron Jordan keeps on getting older. Um, and, and DeMario Davis is, is an old linebacker, still very good, but he's old. 
they they don't have a lot of exciting youth. Um, like C.J. Gardner Johnson was a saint, but he had he had left. Yeah, he had left for Philadelphia, and and now Detroit. And then on offense, they just got a lot of guys, and they don't really have an identity. They have Alvin Kamara. They have Taysom Hill, who is still the jack of all trades. They have Michael Thomas, who is being paid a lot of money, but isn't like you know that guy. They have Chris Olave, who, again, according to those advanced stats, he's one of the worst tax grades in the league. Um, they need to make him a priority. But then they also have like Rashid Shahid, a receiver who is just this dynamic playmaker and you got to find the best way to get him involved. So I think they need to get more of an identity and they need everything else to be very perfect because I think Derek Carr is a good quarterback. Uh, Look with the 49ers with Brock Purdy. Everything is perfect around him. And even with him um, being a little bad the last couple of weeks, it's led to 49ers losses. So I, I think they need the perfect environment. I don't know if... Dennis Allen, I believe, is their coach. I don't know if he's the fit either. Um, so if it's going to be with Derek Carr, I think they need to get more of an identity, some youth on defense, um, and just play very crisply. Uh, so ending the show here with the stats, star of the week, um, full transparency. So this is a tweet I stumbled across during preparation of the show. I had this guy in the back of my mind, but reading this stat... Um, sort of encapsulated everything and really cemented the award for me. So, Luka Doncic is the first player in NBA history to lead the team outright in points, rebounds, and assists in each of its first three games of the season. So, yeah, he's a stat star of the week. I mean, that's absurd. Um, I was going to make a case for him even before I saw that, right? Um, Because there's a lot of other worthy candidates that come to mind. A.J. Brown, uh, Jalen Duran personal favorite of mine so too bad he couldn't win this week uh tommy fam uh, of the snakes but no it's luca magic this week uh he's led them to some great wins uh in opening week they beat the spurs they beat the brooklyn nets uh that last win and then i believe they had another win um i've been without kyrie irving and luke has been great i believe in terms of field goal percentage among guards he's top five um and so at the volume he's doing so that's crazy. Um, you know, he's still somehow like a MVP dark horse he was coming into this season. Um, I think there was a lot of Giannis getting back on the mountain and then Jokic momentum and maybe some Jason Tatum. And I think we like overlooked Luka, who everyone picked up last year. So keep an eye on him, especially if the Mavericks are winning. Um, he is your stat star of the week. So that's going to do it. We'll be back next week. Uh, World Series will probably be over by then. Uh, we'll see if any of these trade deadline guys in the NFL get some real action this week, and we'll see how things stand in the NBA. Another weekend, we'll be you know full two weeks in. See if we can make some some broader claims and and start to feel get a feel for how things are going to go. We'll see you then.